Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right, we are recording and we are recording. I am Chris the Chimanchu. I am joined tonight by Dr. Clara Mao, as well as our first time producer, Rachel Holloway. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. How are things going for both of you? They're good. I'm right in the middle of intern year, so just grinding <laughs> along. And Rachel's going to be there soon. Yeah, and I'm on service with Clara right now, so life can't be better. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, tonight our guest is Dr. Trent Hummel, who's here to discuss pediatric brain tumors. But first, let's remind you about the show. Clara? We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Today, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Trent Hummel. Dr. Hummel is a pediatric neuro-oncologist, as well as the co-director for the Cure Starts Now Foundation Brain Tumor Center in the Cancer and Blood Disease Institute at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. He focuses his clinical research on targeted therapy and poor prognosis CNS neoplasms such as diffuse midline gliomas. He spends his spare time watching soccer, making and eating cheese, and ensuring that Bert, his puppy, doesn't eat socks. Today, he teaches us when to take pause at something your patient is telling you, the first steps to get further workup in patients with red flag symptoms, and how to have hard conversations with families and patients. All right, time to get into it. This episode's going to blow your mind. Let's think about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> two, two in a row. Dr. Hummel, we have Dr. Hummel here. Is it okay if we call you Trent? Absolutely. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for coming on the show. We're sort of an informal group, and um, I'm going to just sort of start off with some warm-up questions, if you don't mind. So I'm going to give it to Rachel to ask the first question. Yeah, so Trent, would you mind just giving us a one-liner to describe yourself? Well, Rachel, I'm an adult-sized kid who loves soccer, most things Cincinnati, cheese, and who happens to be a doctor. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. And, and one of my goals during intern year is to read a little bit more. Um, is there a book that you feel like every physician should read or just every person should read? Well, I'm a little biased since I am an oncologist. So, The Emperor of All Maladies by Siddharth Mukherjee, and also The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. And then my other recommendation is whatever pleasure reading you can fit in, do that. Personally, my pleasure reading is the Jack Reacher series by Lee Childs. Oh. Excellent. Have you gotten a chance to watch the new, new uh, adaptation on Amazon Prime, which I find amazing? Uh, yes. I find that the description on Amazon Prime is much more um, accurate than in the Hollywood movie version. So Jack Reacher doesn't look like Tom Cruise? No. Oh. No, not in my mind. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One question I like to ask is, we try to do some good development for our listeners. And one question I like to ask is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Well, you know, that's a fantastic question. Unfortunately, in my line of work, I don't necessarily have a favorite failure because that opens up a whole, really a Pandora's box on what it means to fail as an oncologist. 
But I will say this, that I've also been a, a soccer referee for the last three to four years, and I've missed calls. I'm human. And what I've realized from interacting with people, with humans, is that no matter how many times you try to make amends to players and coaches, that you can't please everyone all the time. You can also you realize you're not going to be right 100% of the time, but no matter what, you can't please everyone all the time. And so being comfortable with people being upset with you, at least for a little bit, is what I've been learning recently, which helps me in other aspects of life too. Excellent. Rachel, do you have one more question before we jump into it? Absolutely, I do. So as a learner who is about to start the next stage of my education. Um, I am just thirsty for advice. And so I'm wondering what, Trent, is the best advice that you have ever received, either as a learner, as a teacher, or just in general in your career? You know, that's an interesting question again, Rachel. As a learner, personally, I like to write things down. And then as a teacher, as I, as I teach med students, residents, fellows, I tell people, hey, don't need to write everything down. And then as a career, in my career, I think I go back to the first thing that I learned to write things down. For instance, I think it's very personal. For instance, I write things down and I have a bullet journal in order to for me to get things done because there's a lot of people who want my time. There's a lot of things that dem demand my time. So if I have a way to organize things that suits you, again, Rachel, you may not want to write everything down and that's okay. But for me, I need to write things down and check things off. There are other people out there who do not need to do that, but I, I love the idea of checking things off. It makes me feel like I accomplished something, even if it's like eating dinner. Check. I hear there's like a whole art to like bullet journaling out there, right? I haven't gotten that deep in that, but... <laughs> All, I, all I'm using it is just <laughs> is just to draw a little box and write what I'm supposed to do and maybe some other things too, but it really does help me. Excellent. Great advice. All right. I think we should jump into it. What do you think, guys? But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helps support the show. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh has 40 weekly recipes to choose from for all meal occasions, lifestyles, and preferences. Take your pick from meals like soy glazed salmon with rice or mushroom and chive risotto. We were just talking about how we both love chive risotto, weren't we, Sam? Absolutely. We love chive risotto. Love chive risotto. Also, if mushrooms aren't your thing or you live with an orthopedic surgeon, you can power up your meals with the Protein Smart Tag to quickly find recipes with 30 grams of protein or more, like the creamy Dijon dill chicken. I mean, who doesn't love a creamy Dijon, right? Who doesn't? In our house, we've been able to personalize our HelloFresh experience by going with vegetarian options instead. So the meals were easy to cook, vegetarian-centric, and came right to our door. That's amazing. If you want to try this out too, go to HelloFresh.com slash Cribsider60 and use code Cribsider60 for 60% off plus free shipping. Wow, 60% off and free shipping at HelloFresh.com slash Cribsider60 using code Cribsider60? That's right. You got it right. Cribsider60, get 60% off, free shipping, HelloFresh. Enjoy your meals. 
All right. Rachel did, did an excellent job on these cases. So I'm, uh, especially some of the names. So I'm looking forward to this. All right. So this is our case from Cashlack Children's. So Grace Cerebri is a 16-year-old female who uses she, her pronouns, presenting to her pediatrician's office with several months of a headache. She says it was initially mild, occurring after school and alleviated with Tylenol, but has recently not responded to medications and is present immediately upon waking in the mornings. It is bilateral and described as squeezing. In the past week, she has had two episodes of vomiting that somewhat reduced the pain. She's on oral birth control, which she takes in the morning. Upon further questioning, she reveals that she has been stressed about some upcoming college applications. She's had more falls while playing soccer recently and has had difficulty focusing in class with a decrease in recent grades. She has been so tired that when she comes home after soccer practice, she requires hours-long naps before starting her homework. So just diving into the case, Trent, we like to start with the basics. Can you help us review what are some red flag symptoms that make an oncologist worry about a headache? Well, I think, Rachel, the first thing you want to think about is, I think, Rachel, the first thing you want to think about is duration and frequency along with time of onset. So Grace is having not necessarily middle of the night headaches, but she's having headaches when she wakes up in the morning. And that's not something that is normal. If you think about just intuitively, most people who have migraines or some other headaches, we always tell, go lay in a dark room and sleep it off. If you're not able to sleep it off, that should be the first red flag. And then other associated symptoms with that headache, such as vomiting, that relieves the headache, that's red flag number two. And then in general, I think we can get from the history I think if you look at, she's falling more while playing soccer. Now, remember, she's 16. So you would expect even a 16-year-old who just started playing soccer shouldn't be falling down. Now, if she was four or five, you may not that may not raise a flag. But when she's 16 and she's a soccer player, she shouldn't be falling down. So that's a red flag number three. And what about um, like younger kids? What kinds of things would you be looking out for? Because it's kind of harder to tease apart the history in those cases. That's that's a very good question, Clara. Like I think again, in younger kids, they may not tell you they have a headache, right? You may notice things like not eating well. You may notice things to the vomiting or pressure. They may not describe it as as so eloquently as a sixteen year old. But if the mom or dad or parents can say, look, something's off, something's not right. He is stumbling around, he's running into walls. That should be a red flag. Oh, is there some ataxia going on here or, or something that is different than before? That's the biggest thing, something that is different than before. You know, Grace didn't have headaches before. And while there can, there's a long differential with headaches, there are a lot of things that are lining up that are raising red flags. And similarly for a younger person, that younger person didn't have headaches before, but there are a lot of things that are lining up as well. The vomiting, the not eating well, the what I call mother's intuition or father's intuition, um, parents' intuition, to listen to the history taking that you do. Are there any other tips you would give our listeners in terms of history gathering, other questions you might want to ask or things that we want to look out for? Well, I think you want to Again, we're talking about a case where we sort of know the outcome, right? And so, but if in the real world, you don't, right? And so, I think a family history is important. A family history of, 
Is there family history of migraines? Is there family history of headaches? That is a very strong predictor if you can relax a little bit. Like the history of being on birth control is also important. Any other medications that may cause headaches, for instance, any acne medication or things that may cause a pseudotumor cerebri type picture, those are important to delve into that a little bit more. So those are the things that I think we look for a more complete history of medications and family history. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention the social history because as a pediatric hematology oncology fellow, we would be leaning over the microscopes looking at blood smears and Dr. B. Lampkin would all quiz us excessively about the social history because the smoking, drug use, a lot of things that sort of can appear on that blood smear. But the social history is also important as well. You know, is she a nicotine user? You know, does she vape? Is she using other, you know, recreational drugs? I keep wanting to call you Dr. Hummel. Yeah, that's that. great. That's fine. comfortable <laughs> to you. I answer to many names. I have a hard time <laughs> doing that in general. But um, anyways, that's great. And when you're looking at a patient who may have these red flag symptoms like Grace has, what are some physical exam findings that you are looking for? Well, I think you first want to start off with when you have a patient who comes in with headaches and has those three or four red flag symptoms or signs, you'd like to do a more focused neurological exam, starting with just a simple strength exam. Are there equal strength bilaterally? Is there any weakness? And then you want to move to cerebellar functions, finger, nose, finger, assessing gait, assessing ataxia. Is there any pronator drift? Is there any nystagmus? Unfortunately, you want to try to do a user ophthalmoscope. I can always, I can never say that right. Use the thing that you look into the people's eye with, right? <laughs> um, I apologize to all the ophthalmologists <laughs> out there. I know, I, I know that. If, yeah, exactly. If, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna make a video about us. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> but you have to try to look in the back of their eye to see if there's any pathedema. So uh, a complete neuro exam. So to reiterate, a complete neuro exam is warranted in this case. What are your tips and tricks for how to do like eliciting nystagmus or looking for papilledema? Um, like how do you do it? So, well, papilledema is a tough one that I admit that I've always had a tough one as a medical student. You know, and one of the things that I do is, and this is probably admitting a, a fault, a failure, going back to the first one, uh, is that I have the inability to close my left eye. Like, I just can't do it. Like, I kept my both eyes closed. I can't do it. So, basically, when I do a, when I'm looking for papilledema, I have to use my right eye open. And so, when I'm looking into that patient's opposite eye, I'm right in their grill and it can be uncomfortable. But what I would suggest is turn the lights off in the room. Tell the patient, she's 16, I'm going to shine a light in your eye. It's going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to be right up in your face. But I need you to focus and look ahead, ahead as much as you can. And I'll promise to be quick because all you're doing is you're just looking for that disc. You're not assessing whether or not there's pulsations or whatever else you know the eye doctors look for. You're just looking for that disc. Those are the basic things that I look for. From a other neurological standpoint, a finger nose finger. So holding your finger out in front of the patient and saying, please 
take your right pointer finger, touch your nose, and touch my finger, and then you move your finger around different quadrants and have them follow that. And it's fairly obvious if you have cerebellar dysfunction that they are not hitting your finger. Um, also, a pronator drift, so having the patient close their eyes and have their arms straight out in front of them. Um, if you see a pronator drift, that's also a sign that there's probably some lesion somewhere. And the way I elicit nystagmus is I do the typical extraocular movements. And you usually can see if there is going to be nystagmus, especially at presentation. You usually can elicit nystagmus that way. Now, one question about nystagmus is I, I always get confused. Like they always say like when they say left beating or right beating or up down, can you describe a little bit for some of our earlier learning listeners as, as well as me? Because I always forget. I think the important thing to remember is that when you're asking your patient to follow your finger, any beats that you see, so any saccadic beats, I don't even know if that's the right word for it, but any non-smooth motion, more than one or two beats is considered nystagmus, whether it's up, down, sideways, left, right. Like to me, it doesn't matter. Those are, because what you're doing right now is you're just, you're just screening. You're not going to, like when you call the referral into the ER, they're not going to ask you, well, was it up or down or was it side to side? If you just say the word nystagmus, that should, that's one thing. So I wouldn't be bogged down in the, oh, well, you know, there's, was it three beats nystagmus or five beats nystagmus? Was it vertical? Was it... <laughs> If you got it, you got it. That's what. That's how I do. Gotcha. Now, my follow-up question is, you know, obviously some of our patients can be even younger than this yeah. and may have yes. a lot more difficulty with following directions. One is, what <laughs> tips do you have for the younger patients? And two, if you're unable to get these types of physical exam findings, but you have enough pre-test probability based on the history, how excited are you about sending them to an ophthalmologist for a more intense eye exam or sending to the ED for other, other workup? You know, looking at papilledema is really hard in younger patients, and you'll get ophthalmologists that confirm that too. So it's a very challenging case when you have someone who's four or five or even younger, if you're going younger than that. So if you're unsure if there's papilledema, I want to be careful in saying if the patient is not acutely ill, because you'll get a sense if in that young, if someone's, if someone's throwing up and dehydrated, then you need to do, you probably need a more referral. But if you don't have some of those other red flags, you have maybe one red flag. I mean, you can't get a good exam. That's the time to refer to ophthalmology and say, I need someone who's better, a pediatric ophthalmologist, who's better at looking at kids that can see because the consequence of papilledema is referral to, and we'll talk about that later, but the consequence of papilledema is referral, referral to the ED for medical attention. Any other questions about physical exam before Rachel tells us what the physical exam findings were for yeah, our exactly. patient? No? All right, Rachel, take it away. All right. So on physical exam, our patient has age-appropriate vital signs. Pupils are equal, round, and reactive. There is mild bilateral vertical nystagmus with extraocular movements. Cranial nerves are intact. Fundoscopic exam reveals papilledema. She has 5 out of 5 strength to her upper and lower bilateral extremities. Patellar reflexes are brisk. Her neck is supple with full range of motion. Her gait is unsteady and requires stabilization using the wall two times as she walks down the hallway. All right. So given this physical exam, is there any laboratory workup that you have in your mind that you would recommend for this patient? So Rachel, 
even I know the outcome, and I'm still like my eyes are going up when you when you say those things. So you have a teenager with headaches, vomiting, which makes the headaches better, ataxia, and papilledema. Scan. You don't need labs. In my opinion, you don't need labs. And depending on where you're at, I think this is really important because I don't, I don't know who your audience is, but depending on where you're at, meaning where you're at in the United States, that may determine your referral pattern. From a laboratory standpoint, honestly, if you have someone come in with these symptoms, I don't think you need to get a laboratory workup. That laboratory workup will come at some point, but right now you need you have other priorities. And say the case is like not as obvious as this, say it's like a little more subtle, you maybe have one or two red flags, when should like pediatrician be worried enough to get imaging for a headache? And what kind of imaging would you recommend? Like when should I do a CT versus an MRI versus refer to the ED for more like emergent imaging? That's a great question, Clara. I think it depends on your location and your local emergency department. And it honestly depends on your patient. So in this case, things are not subtle, right? Things are obvious. But say you had a younger patient and he wasn't falling into the walls as he was doing your exam and you can't get a good fundoscopic exam So, and your ophthalmologist is out of town and won't be in for another week or so, you may be able to try to get an MRI because if the patient is otherwise stable, right, you still have concerned parents, but you say, look, I understand that something may be going on here, but there's nothing in the history or nothing on my exam that prompts emergent evaluation. So depending on, again, your local area, you may be able to get an MRI because that's a little bit more definitive. Now, I will say that MRI is more definitive, but you have to also realize that that includes sedation for that younger patient. So, in most cases, what most radiologists will tell you, like if you're in that rural area, most people are going to say, just get a CT because you should be able to rule out bad things with a CT. And oftentimes the patient does not need to be sedated. Yes, you are using radiation. So at the end of the day, that's the easiest and quickest. And honestly, it's probably going to be the way to escalate care depending if you have a little bit more subtle signs and symptoms in a younger patient. And do you order the CT with or without contrast? I personally would order it without contrast because all I want to know is if there's a mass. If you have concerns about infection or other types of, of concerns, then you may want to add contrast. But for me, a simple non-con CT should be able to get you your answer in most cases. Now, in a less rural setting, and I have access to a pediatric hospital with MRI, and I, they have anesthesia there who can do sedation, conscious sedation, and they're going to likely get access because of the sedation, do I want... Uh, since I'm putting them under, do I want contrast with the MRI? That's a good question, Chris. In the sense that my knee-jerk reaction would be yes, but oftentimes you can get away with a non-contrast MRI. However, most radiologists would say, if you're going to go under for an MRI, go ahead and go put the IV in, get, give, give contrast. As long as there's, you know, the hydration status is fine and there are other, you know, there are other factors, you know, the kid doesn't have kidney issues. My preference would be to get a MRI with and without contrast because often I've seen it happen in real life, IRL as the kids call it these days. I think we, we've, because we've had some cases where they get a non-con 
MRI and they see something in order for the surgeon, which we'll talk about later, to get a, a good picture, they're going to need another one. So you're going to need to sedate them again, do another MRI with contrast. Cool. So going back to um, this patient, say we sent her to the ED to get um, emergent imaging. Um, what labs would you want us to draw in the ED? So I think the question of labs is always a good one. And I always like to have my trainees and my students always think about what am I going to do with that information when I get it. And so getting a renal profile because the patient has been vomiting to make sure the creatinine is appropriate and make sure their electrolytes are appropriate as well because there's nothing necessarily, there's nothing good about sticking someone in a scanner with a sodium 125. I don't think that's happening here. And I think getting a CBC complete blood count is probably worthwhile too, even though I don't necessarily think where we're going with this is related to anything on that blood count, except for the fact that you're probably going to need other services, namely neurosurgical services in the future. And to get a baseline hemoglobin or hematocrit, the hematologist to me wants a hemoglobin and see what see what's going on there. You know, there's a there's a debate whether or not you need thyroid thyroid testing. I personally wouldn't get thyroid testing at this point. It's an interesting, and we can talk about this later, or we can talk about this now. There's, because we can, maybe we can talk about it later about endocrinopathies in patients with hydrocephalus. That's a good cue for later on. All right. So I have some lab results for you. Oh, you do? I do. Some of them you didn't ask for, but I'm going to give them to you anyways. So Our CBC is within normal limits, no evidence of anemia or leukocytosis. Her renal panel is within normal limits. Her TSH is 3.2. The urine tox screen is negative and her pregnancy test is negative. We did get an MRI with and without contrast and it shows a posterior fossa cystic mass with an associated mass effect causing compression on the fourth ventricle with subsequent mild obstructive hydrocephalus. So how would you interpret these imaging findings? The patient has a tumor, period. Profound. Yeah. Rachel, that is basically, you don't need much more than that. You have mass effects. So to explain this, go a little bit more in depth. The MRI shows a, a posterior fossa, so you know, in the back of the brain. It's a cystic mass with solid components with associated mass effects. So it's, it's causing compression of the fourth ventricle with subsequent mild obstructive hydrocephalus. So basically what I always like to think of is that your cerebral spinal fluid is like a freeway. It's flowing, it's moving smooth, it's moving great. Like freeways in Cincinnati, not freeways in Atlanta or LA or anything like that, right? But then you have a blockage, you have a mass effect of something. So there's an accident somewhere on the freeway and things back up. And when things back up, the traffic backs up and you're going to get hydrocephalus or an increased size of the ventricles. And that tells you that that's what that mass effect is causing. So the mass effect is causing compression of those ventricles, which leads to hydrocephalus, which is a cause of her symptoms. I was going to ask, can you talk about how this obstructive hydrocephalus correlates with her physical exam findings and her history? Yeah. So when you have hydrocephalus, you have headaches, you have vomiting, and you have, it's based, the location, the posterior fossa or cerebellar area is consistent with her ataxic gait and falling over. 
And also, she's got some nystagmus, which probably, I mean, you said her cranial nerves were fine, but it's also, the hydrocephalus is also causing some of the issues with her nystagmus, and it's causing the papilledema. That's what you're seeing. Gotcha. So say I'm the parent of this child who's in the emergency department and we hear a little bit of something or, you know, especially the way data comes really quickly these days, maybe they're they're on their device and all of a sudden the, the read comes up before you're even able to walk in I'm and I'm freaking out. How do you, when you walk in, how do you explain the situation? You know, obviously the, you know, as a parent, I'm going to be like, What's going on? Is my child going to die soon? Is what what does my what does the future for us in our treatment look like? And how do you go about that, Chris? That's a great question as well. I think it depends on who is going to be communicating these findings with the patient. It's either going to be the emergency room physician, and usually that's who it is, along with a neurosurgical colleague or an oncology colleague. Once this MRI comes back, they will be consulting neurosurgery and oncology. And from an oncology standpoint, when we see this, we're happy to go talk to the family. And I'll explain what I'll say in a second. But at the end of the day, we need neurosurgery to come assess this, look at the scan. What do we need to do from the obstructive hydrocephalus and this mass? Can we take it out? Because it is the opinion of the non-combatant that I can look at MRI and say, oh, sure, you can take that out. I'm not the neurosurgeon, right? But how I would approach this, if you were the parent, Chris, I would say, Grace has a mass in the back of her brain, and it's causing blockage of the fluid that goes around her brain. And it is that blockage is causing all the symptoms that she's been experiencing. It's causing the headaches. It's causing the vomiting. It's causing her falling while she's playing soccer. It's causing the swelling behind her eyes that we saw that your pediatrician picked up in the office. Kudos to him, her, or them, right? And the next step is we need to know what it is. And in order to know what it is, we need to get a piece of it or take it out. And most likely, if you're talking about a posterior fossa cystic mass, they're going to try and take it out. And I'd like to introduce you to my neurosurgical colleague who's waiting outside. And then they come into the room and talk to them about the next steps. And when you get this kind of abnormal um, brain imaging, say you're in the outpatient setting and you're sending them in, do you need to do anything right away when you find this result? Like, do we give dexamethasone to these patients or do we just kind of send them to the ED and have them see the neurosurgery and the oncologist? I would send them into the emergency room for an acute neurosurgical evaluation. I would not give them dexamethasone because especially pre-surgery. Neurosurgery is very particular about giving steroids and dexamethasone, and oncologists are pretty... We don't give dexamethasone a lot in other, other situations. Oftentimes, the neurosurgeon will be the one to dictate if steroids are given or, or not. And it depends on a couple factors. It depends on how bad that, quote, mild obstructive hydrocephalus is. The other thing that the MRI might show is transependymal edema, which is another fancy word for more pressure in the brain. If you see that and they're not going to be able to go to the operating room for a couple days because the patient's otherwise stable, then they may do steroids. But that is in the hands of the neurosurgery. And can you explain what that surgery would look like for a patient like this and what the potential complications might be? So, Claire, I think the outcome or the complications with regards to surgery really depends on the type of tumor that this patient has. 
when we look at this, you know, we'll talk about the differential later on, but the differential right now is juvenile pallocytic astrocytoma or a low-grade glioma, but also you can have medulloblastoma, ependymoma, or high-grade gliomas based on the patient's age and the location of this. And so the goal of surgery is to get it all out, a gross total resection, meaning there's no gross disease by the neurosurgeon's eye and by the, by the MRI, the postoperative MRI or interoperative MRI. In most cases with low-grade gliomas involving the cerebellum, that's an, quote, easy. It's still neurosurgery, and I always hate saying that it's easy, but it is a, a less difficult surgery. And the complications, I mean, again, it's still neurosurgery, so there still could be complications with balance. There still could be nystagmus afterwards. We have to make sure that the hydrocephalus goes down. So there's a lot of potential issues. If it's a more aggressive tumor like medulloblastoma or ependymoma, the surgeon tends to be a little bit more aggressive in getting everything out. And when that happens, you can develop, the patient can develop something called cerebellar mutism or posterior fossa syndrome. And what that is, is basically like its namesake. It's a, the patient comes out mute and has a lot of physical therapy needs, a lot of occupational therapy needs, a lot of speech needs. The patient can understand everything. So that's not necessarily intellectual deficit, which can lead to a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration, because Grace, if this if this turned out to have cerebellar mutism or posterior fossa syndrome, Grace went into this, I wouldn't call her whole, but she went into it playing soccer, albeit falling, but is coming out of it not being able to move her legs or very minimal movement of her legs, very movement of her arms, and not being able to speak and communicate, but yet understanding everything or most everything that is said. And so what we find is intensive rehab is the key. You can come out of posterior fossa syndrome, cerebellar mutism with intensive rehab, PT, OT speech, and it is amazing when you see these kids and these patients make ginormous strides on the rehab floor. I can put other adjectives in there, but it is absolutely fantastic what those rehab folks can do when it comes to posterior fossa syndrome. Out of curiosity, how long would that rehab take? That's a great question, Rachel. Sometimes it, dep it depends on the severity of the posterior fossa syndrome, and it also depends on how long or how much insurance how many inpatient rehab days you have from an insurance standpoint. Mm. Most often, we're talking about two to four weeks of inpatient rehab. And those two to four weeks are six days a week, and they are an intense. So you're in there, and they're working you every day, nearly every day. And that's what really generates these outcomes. But at the end of that four weeks, Rachel, you're not necessarily take your SATs. There's a lot of work to be done after that, too as far as continuing outpatient physical therapy and OT. But that intense two to four weeks is really where you see the most gains. And in fact, I'll say this. I'll say this with those patients. So I see them, if they don't need any therapy, I'll, I'll see them every three months. And for me, I see between month zero and three, I see these, the slope is huge, right? I see this, I see this gain three to six, I see another gain, but for the parents and for the kid, it's a daily grind, right? They think it's just going so slow, but I get to see them. And so that's really what we do too. We're cheerleaders when we're saying, look how, how you were, pull your pictures up on your phone three months ago. You were doing this, now you're doing this, but it really wears on the, on the patients too. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine but that must be very rewarding from your perspective to be able to see that 
you know, rehabilitation and see their progress. So we've kind of touched on it a little bit as far as the differential for this posterior fossa mass. But, you know, from my perspective as a current medical student, I try to think undifferentiated and so not thinking infections or anything like that. But is there anything else that you're considering like a met from another primary elsewhere in the body? Um, Are you concerned that this has metastasized to elsewhere in the body? What kinds of things should we have on our radar as far as a differential? That's actually a great point, Rachel, that we should talk about. And the first thing I would say, I don't believe this is a met- metastatic disease. It doesn't fit with the presentation. You'd have other, typically if you have other signs or symptoms, abdominal pain, because that's where you're really talking about, uh, you know, uh, a met from some other other lymphoma or a 16-year-old is not going to necessarily have neuroblastoma or rhabdomyosarcoma or something like that. They were, you, would, you would have symptoms elsewhere, typically. So I usually don't think of this being a met, uh, a met. And one of the things that we should talk about is I would get an MRI of the spine at diagnosis because I think one of the important things we should talk about is the terms benign or malignant. The use of the word benign is the bane of the pediatric neuro-oncologist. I hardly ever use that word because people often can. Conf- Fuse the word benign with, quote, not cancer, unquote. And that's simply not true. In fact, low-grade gliomas, what this is probably is, can metastasize to the CNS axis. I'm not going to say never, but they're not going to metastasize outside the axis. Other types of tumors can. Medulloblastomas, ependymomas, and I've seen it, can go outside um, the CNS axis. That's very rare. But for the most part, you need to get an MRI of the spine to make sure there's no other other lesion somewhere else. And once you do that and you have a single solitary lesion in your brain, then you likely don't need to get an MRI of the, of the spine ever again. Um, so malignant to me, it points to the underlying metastatic potential of a tumor. And so in that sense, is a localized pilocytic astrocytoma or low-grade glioma malignant? Probably not. Even though it can spread, it probably won't. But it still is cancer. It's an astrocytoma. It's a type of glioma. That's what it is. And, you know, I don't like to use the term benign because you need to have brain surgery, right? That's not benign. I mean, you were thrown up for a while. You're falling playing soccer. That's not benign. So that's my, like, pet peeve is using the word benign. Your soapbox. My soapbox. Well, that's all very helpful. A good reminder, you know, how to differentiate between benign and malignant. So as you asked, our patient undergoes biopsy of the lesion and is consistent with pilocytic astrocytoma. So could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, prognosis and what does treatment look like for pilocytic astrocytoma, but also maybe some other common posterior fossa masses? So, Rachel, the first thing I would ask if someone told me that the 16-year-old with this history, with this MRI, got a biopsy only, I would ask the neurosurgeon why. And there may be a good reason, but most times in these cases, it's a gross total resection. They try to do a gross total resection. They might even be able to do what's called a subtotal resection where there is some residual 
and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But a biopsy would be unusual, and th- and that. But I will say that I just had that happen probably about in the summer of 2022 at a patient who had a low grade glioma and had some complications on the table with their airway. And so we were only able to get a limited amount of tissue. So that's the first thing I would ask. But in most cases, an uncomplicated surgery, this would probably have a more complete resection. And so if the pathology, and it's all in the pathology, so you need a surgical resection followed by pathology to review and look for genomic findings that may help you with the diagnosis as well, and possibly look for targeted options. But I'll talk about that in a second. Low-grade gliomas in general, if you resect everything, take it all out, you're oftentimes done, meaning you can go into observation mode. Even if you get a subtotal resection, so those say you have 80% resection and there's 20% tumor left, and I'm sometimes 30% tumor left, you could make an argument that you could continue to observe and monitor, meaning observe with surveillance MRI scans. Because, and this is more theory than anything else, not necessarily expert opinion, but it typically in low-grade gliomas, they like cells like to be next to each other, and when you do surgery and take these these tumors out partially or in, in, in whole, they tend not to grow again. And so you can have patients who have long-term survival without with a subtotal resection without any adjuvant therapy, be it chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Now, going back to looking at those genomic findings, that's probably one of the single most important things that has happened in the last seven, five to seven years is that we have now identified genomic alterations in low-grade gliomas and in a host of pediatric brain tumors, which one, provide and confirm diagnoses, and two, offer potential therapeutic options that have less, theoretically less side effects than traditional chemotherapy. For instance, a BRAF mutation is one of the most common mutations in low-grade gliomas. And there are two types. There's BRAF fusions and there's BRAF point mutations or a V600E mutations. BRAF mutations can be targeted using MEK inhibitors such as selumetinib or, or binimetinib. And V600, BRAF V600E mutations can be targeted using the combinations of dabrafenib, which is a BRAF inhibitor, plus a MEK inhibitor like selumetinib or trametinib. In fact, the there's a recent article slash, I believe it was at Snow, Society for Neurooncology, that came out saying that if you have a patient with a BRAF V600E mutation, you are justified in moving right to targeted therapy because outcomes, at least in a not head-to-head, not a phase three trial, but at least in some of the preliminary data are superior to traditional chemotherapy. That's been a game changer because going back, traditional chemotherapy is, again, this is off-label use because they're not they're not FDA approved for pediatrics, but essentially the most common chemotherapy for low-grade gliomas is a carboplatin-based regimen. Carboplatin's an alkylator. It, we use carboplatin all the time. Now, and that's given IV, it has myelosuppressive properties. It drops your counts. It, you know, you have to go on Bactrim for PJP prophylaxis. There's a whole host of issues with carboplatin. And now we have IV, so you need a port, you need some sort of central line. Now we have oral medications 
some of which can be made into a liquid that can target these mutations. And in fact, the children's oncology group, I'll say this about targeting mutations, the children's oncology group is currently doing a trial that's a non-inferiority trial, meaning we know what carboplatin does, we know what these MEK inhibitors do, but we want to see which one is, um, and we know that pills tend to be better than IVs, but we're looking at which one is less inferior. And the last sort of bastion of treatment for any kind of brain tumor is radiation. But we're dealing with kids. Kids have developing brains, so we try to reserve radiation, uh, especially in low-grade gliomas, as a last resort. Now, we'll touch on two things real quickly about the other tumors in that differential. So, medioblastoma, posterior phosphorus tumor, and ependymoma. Those are aggressive, malignant, they have a high malignant potential tumors. And again, the we now have underlying genomics, which can risk stratify the patient based on those genomics into standard risk, high risk, or very high risk. But in all of those tumors and medulloblastoma and ependymoma, radiation is part of standard of care. And so we use proton beam radiation for that. Proton beam radiation is basically radiation using protons. I don't want to sound like too simplistic, but that's what it is. But the amazing thing is, and I'm not a physicist, but the amazing thing about proton beam radiation is that you have a, a zero exit dose. So when you give someone an x-ray using electrons, right, it goes right through you, comes out the other side. They have the ability to control the energy of that proton so where there is no exit dose. So in medioblastoma, I need to do cranial spinal irradiation. In the past, that cranial spinal irradiation meant long-term effects with thyroid issues, cardiac issues, lung issues, gut toxicity. Now with proton beam, since there is no exit dose, in theory, I don't have to worry about thyroid issues as far as primary thyroid issues because we're still radiating the whole brain. So we still have to talk about endocrinopathies more centrally, but I don't have to worry about cardiac issues or lung issues or gut toxicity. So you had previously mentioned um, that endocrinopathies can happen as a result of the hydrocephalus or some of the radiation treatments for brain tumors. Can you talk a little bit more about those um, and what we have to look out for? Yeah, it's it's important that any patient who has hydrocephalus at any point and patients who have had radiation at any point to their brain get assessed by an endocrinologist. Screening lab, and that includes looking at their growth pattern, their growth rate, because the things we're looking for are endocrinopathies such as thyroid dysfunction, growth hormone deficiency. Those are the two biggest ones. And most of my patients uh, who have had radiation have thyroid, have hypothyroid and are on thyroid hormone replacement. And interestingly, a lot of other patients, depending on the type of tumor, also have growth hormone deficiency. And what that brings into the question of, well, we have growth hormone replacement because not only you're talking about height, you're talking about organ function or like organ size. There's a lot of a lot of things that you just don't think of when you talk growth hormone deficiency. And so there is, I'll say this, there is no evidence that using growth hormone increases the risk of recurrence of brain tumors. That being said, it is really hard to tell a parent that, hey, 
we need to put you on growth hormone. Just the word growth hormone brings back PTSD because they hear that and they think, what is going to happen if this grows a tumor back? And so even though there's no evidence, we tend to take things very slowly and we tend to image a little bit more frequently when they first start growth hormone to help reassure the parents. And then the third thing that we need to watch out for from an endocrinopathy standpoint, especially in females, is reproductive potential. Not only from radiation affecting central hormones, but certain types of chemotherapy can affect the ability of one to have children in the future. So that is that is counseled upon before receiving that treatment. There is a fertility team for both males and females at most uh, pediatric oncology centers that can assess the risk for future fertility issues. Yeah, that's a great point and something that most people probably wouldn't think about. Uh, so thanks for bringing that up. So here with the team at the Cribsiders podcast, we have made an effort to discuss health disparities within the fields of the guests that we have on the podcast. So we wanted to ask, are there any health disparities that are well-known in the field of neuro-oncology, whether it be between race, race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, et cetera? You know, Rachel, that's a great question. And the simple answer is that minorities are horribly underrepresented in clinical trials. They also have, you know, socioeconomic status and access to care is limited. And also, I think the important thing to remember, in fact, I was just pulling this up, there's a Guardian article that just came out and it's titled, The Human Genome Needs Updating, But How Do We Make It Fair? So, you know, a chunk of our challenge in the in medical equity is structural. We develop drugs and we recommend phase two doses in majority populations, but we don't have minority populations or other populations that don't have necessarily the same metabolism or toxicity profiles in other ancestries. So that has to be addressed. And it's tough in one sense because... If I could be out of a job tomorrow, that'd be great. I don't want people to get pediatric brain cancer. But the reality is that we people get it and everyone gets it. And so we need to do a better job of having access to clinical trials for those patients and having access to some of the basic science to update the basic science so we can actually inform minorities about some of the toxicities that we do so important, those those aspects. And I'm really happy that you're able to touch upon that. Definitely something that we try to touch upon in every episode. So, And we just wanted to, you know, thank you again for being on our podcast um, and giving us such a great overview of um, pediatric brain tumors. Um, what are your main take-home points for our listeners? Well, thank you very much, everybody. I appreciate it, Chris, Clara, and Rachel. I appreciate you allowing me to come on here and talk about my passion. And I think the take-home points for your audience are, one, there's multiple types of brain tumors in kids, and the prognosis depends on the type, the extent of resection. Number two, headaches that wake you up and combine that with neurological signs are red flags, and you should refer and scan. Those are warning signs. And the second thing, or the third thing, the third thing is listen to parents. 
Oftentimes we hear, oh, I've been to my doctor three or four times with the same complaint. And, you know, that's, I've had patients say that to me too, right? Uh, you know, they keep saying the same thing, thing over and over again. So I'm not saying that anyone did anything wrong, but I'm saying just listen. I know, especially in a busy pediatric pet, you know, practice when you're seeing up, um, told patients a day, just take a moment to listen, especially if you have those red flags, take a moment to listen. And then my, my final plug <laughs> for pediatric oncology is that the NCI funding for pediatric cancer, all of pediatric cancer, not just pediatric brain tumors, is 4%. So four cents of every dollar is supposed to cover all research. And you talk about health disparities. How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to how are we supposed to do that with four pennies on every dollar? And that's sometimes why you'll see on social media hashtag more than four. You'll see that a lot, especially in September, which is pediatric cancer month. So what we rely on is individual foundations, charities that help us fund research. So we thank those individual foundations who remind us that their children are more than four. Excellent. Thank you again for all the time you spent with us this evening. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will will get so much out of this episode and hopefully we can have you back on again at some point. Sweet. I appreciate it. Thank you all. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Rachel Holloway, our showrunner, Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Clara Mao. I've been Rachel Holloway. And this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. Thank you. Good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. BCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.